This morning we'll be in the, the book of First Timothy again, chapter 4, so let me pray. Well, Father, this message is uh, not mine, but Lord, I pray that it's yours. And Lord, uh, as we work through this, this scripture this morning, Father, there's a reason that each of us are here, and there's a reason that you've chosen this day to use this section in First Timothy. And so I would pray that our hearts would be open to that, Lord. We are your church. We are your people. And we want to respond to you, Lord, in faith. Help us, God. Move in power, I pray right now, as the word of God is preached and taught. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you turn in your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The section of Scripture right here is verses 6 through 16. You know, as as I was working through this text, I, I think Paul's heart is the heart of really any pastor, is he, he loves to see his people walking in the truth, that they're just living it, you know, kind of like Ray and Rebecca, just, just kind of doing whatever Jesus points them to do, being faithful to the Scriptures. What I'd like you to do, since you're in chapter 4, is maybe just look right up above in chapter 3 at verse 15, because Paul gives you the reason why he wrote this letter to Timothy. He says this, in case I'm delayed... I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, I'm writing you this letter so that you're going to know how people should conduct themselves in their Christian life, in the church, in in real life. Timothy, you help them. Help them to just be a Christian in a world that's ever-changing, in the wacky and weird, weird world we live in. Timothy, you help them. Help them to understand how to conduct themselves. Paul in another book in Timothy says, I mean in in Philippians he says, help them to to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so that's the goal, if you will, of this letter, how to help people conduct themselves as a Christian. And in this section this morning, Paul's going to explain to Timothy what a good minister looks like. What is a good minister? I mean, what is a minister? Um, I'm a minister. By the way, you all are ministers of the gospel. We've all been called that. And so today, he's going to help Timothy understand what a good one looks like. That's, that's going to be this section right here. And particularly, he's going he's to help him to, and help us to understand how to be a good minister. And so we're going to take this in sections as we walk through the text First, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, and the first half of verse 7. Let's read that together. It says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, the first thing we'll see this morning is that a good minister helps others, studies the Word of God, and avoids false doctrine. A good minister, they'll help others. They're going to study the Word, and then they're going to avoid things like false doctrine, things that hinder the work of the gospel. Godly behavior does not save a person, but it is evidence that the person is saved. And if you remember, there was false teaching in the church here, and Paul had, had just kind of come off this section in verses 1 through 5 saying, hey, there's going to be 
false doctrine that's going to spread around and, and people's ears are going to get tickled and, and some are even going to listen to that and they're going to fall away. They looked like the real deal. But then when push came to shove, when temptation came, when false, when false teaching came, suddenly they departed from the faith. And so what he says here, a good minister, they're going to help others. So what he begins is he says, in pointing these things out, and pointing what things out? What he just said in verses 1 through 5. When you warn people, Paul, Paul's saying, when you warn people, Timothy, you are a good servant. You're a good minister of the gospel. You're helping people. When you let people know that what they're doing is not right, what they're believing and following is not true, when you do those things, Timothy, that's good. You're being a good minister of the gospel. Pointing out is the word hupatathime, and it means to remind or, or lay before it. It's not like a direct command, you will do this. It's an encouragement ongoing into the future. It's, it's done with a gentle heart and respect. It's, it's constantly coming around in person saying, get back in. <laughs> you wandered. Get back here. Come on. Listen to truth. Don't listen to the lie. Now, to, to be a, a good minister, it applies to me as a pastor, and I'm, I'm reading this for me. As I'm going through this text, I was going, well, okay, I want to make sure I follow this. But guys, it, fo- it belongs to you too. You can't write this one off. Uh, you all are ministers with me. We minister together. We had a leadership and board meeting yesterday, leaders in this church. By the way, Ken Jackett, who came up and prayed for us, is one of the board members, one of the leaders of our church. And we're going to bring them up front now every Sunday and have them pray. Why? Because they're part of the body. They're part of the leadership. They're a minister along side by side with us. And, and you're a minister with us. If you're in Christ, you're a minister of the gospel And by the way, if you're saying, well, no, I'm not, do you know you're probably the only Christian in some area of your life that people know? Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your work. I I used to like to use the term, tag, you're it. God tagged you. You're it. And by the way, because you're it, he's calling you to be this. You're the minister that they see. You're the one that believes in Jesus. He's the one that's calling you out on this. And, And so to begin with, we're to help others. In a very practical way, he's saying and pointing these things out, Timothy, you point out, you warn them. False doctrine. You help people understand those things. That's important. Be that person. And he says, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ in verse 6. Good is the word kalos, and it means noble, good, admirable. You'll be an admirable Christian. You'll be a noble Christian. You'll be a good Christian. And by the way, that, that word servant is the word diakonos, and it can also mean minister, and that's why I'm using that term minister, is you, you're a minister uh, wherever you're at, whatever level God has placed you. And sometimes I say, well, maybe you're not the only Christian, but are you the most mature Christian? Tag, you're it. You're the one that's supposed to live it. You're the example. And so you're, you're to help people, but also you're to be devoted to the Word of God. A minister is constantly nourished on the words of faith. He's saying, Timothy, be nourished on the words of faith in, in verse 6. The words of faith is Christian truth, it's Christian doctrine, it's the teaching of the New Testament that the apostles taught. Nourishment in the Word of God was essential for the health of the church, but it was essential for Timothy. And and I think what he's saying here is, be nourished in the Word, Timothy, so you can nourish other people. Before you're ever going to be able to help somebody know the Word of God and grow in their understanding of the Word and, and the love of Jesus, boy, you need to have that nourishment in yourself, you need to feed on the word. 
you know, this past Wednesday, we talked about the authority of Scripture. And, and like Pastor Neil said, Pastor Ryan did a wonderful job explaining that. And one of the things he talked about is how the Word of God is powerful. It's like a lion. Now, with a lion, you know it's power. All you got to do is open the cage, and it's out. That's what we do with the Word of God. I mean, the teaching of the Word of God is simple in a way. I mean, it, it takes a lot of effort to study it. But the bottom line is, all I got to do is teach what's here, because that's where the power is. Not only do you want to teach it, but before you teach it, you need to take it in. You need the Word of God. You need a steady diet. And he's saying, Timothy, have a steady diet of the Word. Be nourished on the Word. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord. It is my meditation all day long. Joshua 1.8 puts it like this. It says, And do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate it. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that's in it, and then you will have success. Meditating on the Word of God, taking in the Word of God, being nourished on the Word of God, and good ministers, they feed themselves on the Word of God. If you want to be effective in your service for Christ, are you in the Word of God yourself? Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of God brings restoration to your soul. It, It enables you to live the Christian life in a world that literally has gone nuts. And it keeps you on a straight and narrow path. It's food for you. It's nourishment for you. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but I hope the Holy Spirit is. Man, do you need this? Man, do I need this? Because without it, we got nothing. We have no strength. Our thinking gets weird. We have no power for ministry without the nourishment of the word. And I want to just kind of put a little side note here. It goes without saying, but a real minister of the gospel needs a real relationship with Christ, an ongoing, dynamic, real deal because he is real. And that you know him personally. It's, it's just not a mechanical kind of thing we walk through. And if you were to kind of say, if Jesus, if the Lord was to look at me right now, what would be the expression on his face? Would it be pleasure? I want to tell you something. You know what it would be? Acceptance. You are fully accepted in Christ. He just loves you so much. Romans tells us in Romans 5, it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, you're accepted. You are reconciled in Him. And because of that, you can come to His throne. You can spend time in His Word, and He wants to meet with you. He so much wants to meet with you. And you can have a real, dynamic, living relationship with the Lord, but you cannot do it without the Word of God. You've got to have the Word of God as part of it. So, so Timothy is to be spiritually nourished and strengthened in the Scriptures. And when that happens, you'll know sound doctrine. And he says, and of the sound doctrine which you have been following at the end of verse 6 there. Sound doctrine, I kind of look at it as the guardrails that keeps you out of the wacky and weird world of thinking. Sound doctrine are the essentials of the Christian faith. It's, it's the essentials that you need to know. And when you're regularly being fed on the Word of God, man, it just keeps you in that straight lane that you understand. And you're able to be used by the Lord. 
Now, I love this verse. It says, Psalm 5, 3 says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice, and in the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now, I'm a morning guy, so in the morning I just set aside that hour. This is yours, Lord. If I have a really busy day, then I just bump the clock back. Lord, this is your hour. I make an appointment with the Lord. It's the first appointment because I don't want to be at the end of the day trying to tell the Lord all the things I did wrong. I want to start the day so I can have him help me live the Christian life. I need that nourishment. I need that fresh bread. Why? So that I can bring you fresh bread this morning. But if you don't have that nourishment, you're going to be kind of confused and like, I don't know. And, and, and the waves of weird doctrine, unsound doctrine, it's going to overtake you. But when you're in the Word regularly and you're being nourished by the Word of God, and you, you, you're, you understand sound doctrine. It's just kind of part of your thinking. And, and somebody says something that's different, oop, the flag goes up. Why? Because it's in there. You've been taking in the Word regularly. This is why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent and present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So not only do we take the word in devotionally, but guys, we also study. We study the word. It becomes part of our life. It's, yeah, I meet the Lord devotionally in the mornings, but I also have separate times where I dig. I dig in. Now, I don't know if you know who William Tyndale is, but in the 16th century, he was an English reformer and he was a Bible translator. And he really kind of stood up against the, the Catholic Church in Rome that were doing really a lot of bad things back then. And what William Tyndale felt that the Lord had told him was to translate the New Testament in the, into the common everyday language of the people so that they could read for themselves and actually understand the Word of God. Well, Rome did not like that, but he did it anyway. And then he started to get the word out. And so he was thrown in prison. And shortly before he was martyred, right before, I want you to listen to a letter that he wrote to the governor asking for a few things. This is what he said. He he said, I need a warmer cap and a candle and a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. But above all, I beseech your clemency that you may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew dictionary that I might spend time and study. He needed it. Why? Food for a soul. Food for a soul right before he's going to die. Also, well-known British pastor and theologian John Stott said, when an evangelical minister does not study, he will by midlife become a sentimentalist in his preaching, depending primarily on a repertoire of cliches and sappy stories that tug on the heartstrings because he has nothing else to say. Man, do we need the word of God but we need to study it too. And I think there are probably some of you here that you're in the routine, and you used to be a diligent studier of the Word. But as the years have gone by, now it's kind of a light touch. You kind of did your deal, and you turn the page, maybe check off the box, but the Word of God has kind of lost its flavor for you. And I want to encourage you back. Come on back. This Word will make the difference in your life. And then the way Paul goes from here, after that kind of train of thought, and he says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. What he's saying is that that word of God that guards your mind and your heart, it's going to keep you from listening to all the stuff, the worldly fables. Now, he's not saying that all old women speak <laughs> worldly fables. <I'm, laughs> I, think what he, I think the thought there is that in, in that day and age particularly, um, the women really had no education. Many of them were illiterate, 
And, and the elderly women, they had a lot of time, and so they, maybe they gossiped a lot. And so they would speak a lot about anything that was going on in the culture, anything that was on their mind. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't go to the wacky and weird world. Stay in the lane. You be a man of the word. You study the word. You be faithful to the word of God and let it direct your thoughts. One of the classes that I had in seminary that, that was, it was a good class and that I learned a lot, but I did not like it. And it was for this reason. It was called Modern Theology. And what it did is it took liberal theology, and I had to read 12 different books, all liberal scholars. None of these guys believe that the Bible is inerrant, or, and, but I'd have to read the whole book. I'd have to write a paper on it. But then what we do in class, we would break down the book why it was wrong. So it was helpful in that sense, but man, I hated putting that stuff in my head. It was like poison to my soul. And that three months of that class, I dreaded every book I had. I was like, ugh, because it wasn't true. It wasn't the Word of God. It was skewed. Don't feed your mind on junk. Now, in our day and age, it can be anything. You know, for some of you, it might be romance novels. You laugh, but hey, it's a, it's a, it's a number one seller. For some, it may just be TV, video. It could be you know, a lot of movies, all this kind of stuff, but very little time in God's Word. And so your, your thinking has just gone kind of skewed and kind of weird. And, and if you really pushed or shoved or poked anywhere, you'd be just like anybody else. And the Word of God's not directing your life or your thoughts. Now, I think the best way that a good minister could, could help somebody is to help them be that person of the Word, really be kind of digging in. And, and so I just want to help you with maybe a thought on how this might work. Do you meditate on Scripture? So kind of think about your, your mind as a cup of tea. So if you kind of get a picture in your mind, you have the cup and the hot water, that's your mind. And the tea bag is what you put in. And so right now, preaching, teaching, what you hear, what you listen to is like one little dip of the, the tea bag. Boop. And so you're going to get some color. You're going to get just a little bit of flavor. Kind of a, you're going to take some of this with you. But I guarantee you, most of you, if I, if I called you at 5 o'clock, okay, give me the four points I tell you today. You're going to be like, ugh. So you're going to get a flavor of the Word. But then as you dig deeper, reading, studying, memorizing God's Word, it's, it's more dips of that teabag, and, and, and the water's getting darker and darker. You're getting more of the Word in. This is all part of your life, and now it's, it's helping you. But meditation is like when you take that teabag. My wife loves tea. When you take that teabag and you put it in that hot water and you just let it steep. And it begins to percolate in that water, and it begins to fill all that water with that deep brown flavor and color. It saturates, if you will, your mind. Meditate on the Word of God. And I'll tell you an easy way to do it. Take kind of a small scripture to start with, just a one or two liner, something that you can memorize easily. Take it, and first you've got to memorize it, so however that works, you can put it on your computer. Pastor likes to put it in his car. I got in his car, we went to a lunch, and I saw it hanging there. However you can memorize Scripture, memorize it. And then what I like to do sometimes is right before I go to sleep, and I'm closing my eyes, and before I'm asleep, but my mind's starting to clear, I think upon that word, and I begin to chew on it and think upon it. And it begins to saturate my thoughts, and it'll become part of who you are. Meditate on the Word of God. But some of you will say, well, Pastor Rubba, I, I just don't have time. Make time. Please, make time. A good minister helps others, studies the Word of God, avoids false doctrines. Second thing is a good minister strives to live a disciplined and godly life. He strives to live a disciplined and godly life. The Christian life is not abide and glide. The Christian life is a diligent life, 
a desire to, to do the things of God. Look at the second half of verse 7 all the way down to verse 11. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and, and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. In verse 11, he says, prescribe and teach these things. Paul says, on the other hand, so, so on the one hand, study the true word, avoid false teaching. But on the other hand, become like an athlete. Put yourself into training. Be diligent. And, and the command to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, the, the idea is that, that no effective spiritual worth or, or life is going to happen without this concept of discipline. Discipline is from the Greek word gomazio, and it means gymnasium or gymnastics, and it means to train or to exercise. It means rigorous, strenuous, self-sacrificing training, a willingness to put yourself in, in, in the, the difficult part because there are results that happen. And by the way, every Greek city, and actually every Roman city, they had gymnasiums. And so Ephesus had one. And so Paul's using something in the culture that they would all be familiar with. And actually, it's interesting that the Greek culture was very much like our culture. They were like really into like the cut body and the really in shape people. And in fact, as the Olympic Games, basically the people that are in Olympic Games are basically naked. I mean, they were, this is part of who they were. And, and so for them, they really stressed in, in the Greek culture this discipline of the athlete and, and, you know, at the end of it, getting that wreath, that that wreath of victory, and that was all a part of that culture. But what Paul is saying, that same idea of discipline, use it in godliness, godly living. And, and the idea, I think, is like, um, if you're a runner, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and, and a friend of theirs, they, they just ran 13 miles yesterday because they're training for an upcoming marathon. I'm like, never going to happen in my life. But there are other things I'll try to be disciplined at. This idea is that he would run the 13 miles and then say, I'm going to do another three. Or maybe you're a weightlifter and, and you work yourself to exhaustion. You get that one last rep and you, oh, okay. But then you say, I'm going to do three more. That's the idea here. It's you're pushing yourself. You're, you're training yourself. You're going beyond even your abilities for what? For godliness sake. To be Christ-like. And so spiritual discipline is like what's required for an athlete or even a soldier. And it's the primary reason when people are not disciplined, that they, they tend to stumble and fall into sin is because they don't have the discipline of the Lord in their life. Now, I'd like you to see this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul kind of spells this out, what it looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. First Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, run in such a way as with, without aim. I box in such a way 
as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others that I myself may not be disqualified. He's saying, discipline yourself in such a way, run in such a way, be so diligent about how you live your life, about you seeking the Lord in the word. Why? Because it has results for the kingdom. It really, really matters. Now, Paul also speaks to Titus or, or Timothy in, in 2 Timothy about a soldier. And he says this in 2 Timothy 2.3. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. And no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who he enlisted him as a soldier. So we know that discipline, it benefits the soldier, it benefits the athlete, but it really benefits the man and woman of God. And some people, when, when you talk about discipline in the Christian life, they go, wait a minute, that sounds like legalism to me. I mean, are we supposed to just kind of let the Holy Spirit move and just kind of lead us and we just kind of flow and He just kind of brings that stuff in? And No. No. The legalistic heart says, I will do this to gain merit with God. But the disciplined heart says, I'm going to do whatever it takes because I want to be like my Father and with my Father. And Lord, I want to be in the Word of God. And I want to seek you in the morning and seek you in the evening because it really matters to my own growth, but also the growth of others. And he he says something here that some of you are really going to love. He says that for bodily discipline is only of little profit. He says, but godliness is profitable for all things. So this is a culture that's overly obsessed with this idea of physical condition. And what he's saying is that, you know, physically fit is important. I mean, it's, it's good for health and You know, I want to have health so that I can have more years to preach the gospel and to be effective for the kingdom, but it's only going to be good for this life. And so your physical condition is only going to really benefit you here, the here and now, but the spiritual condition is going to have both an effect here, a positive effect, and an effect in the kingdom of God. There'll be rewards and other things that'll be affected by by the ministry that you too. So I want to encourage you today, get a donut. (laughs) and study the word. Okay. So he says here, bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. 1 Timothy 6.6 says that godliness is actually a means of great gain. And I don't think on the day of judgment you're going to stand before God and he's going to ask you, how in shape were you? But he will say this. This is Thomas Kempis says this. He warned, he said, at the day of judgment, We shall not be asked what we read, but what we have done, and not how eloquently we have spoken, but how we have lived. Godliness is going to have an impact on our eternity. And this is why in verses 9 and 10, he says, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this that we labor and strive, because we fixed our hope on the living God, who's the Savior of all men, and especially of believers. Now, Paul says it's a trustworthy statement five times in the pastoral epistles, four times deal with salvation, one time deals with Timothy's desire to be an overseer or a pastor. And right here, he's dealing with salvation again. I think the idea here is that you cannot live a godly life without being saved. The work of the Holy Spirit has to be in you so that you can actually do this thing, live a life that honors God. And he says, it is for this that we labor and strive, and that's verse 10, but it's connected to verse 8. And what Paul's telling his readers is to labor and strive towards godliness. Labor is to work to the point of weariness. Strive is agonizomai, you you agonize 
over this idea about the way that you live? And do you honor God by your actions? I don't know if you know this, but Billy Graham, his father-in-law, his name was Nelson Bell, and he was a missionary in China, and he run a 400-bed hospital. And he would rise up at 4.30 every morning and spend two to three hours in the Word of God before he would do anything else. And he had a nickname from the people. He was known as the Walking, Talking Bible. Why? Because he saturated himself with the Word of God. He disciplined himself. He, 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 he labored and strived for the sake of godliness. And it so impacted his life that many came to Christ through his life. He had fruit, abundant. There's a lieutenant general, William K. Harrison. He was the most decorated soldier of the 30th, 30th Infantry Division. That division was rated by General Eisenhower as the number one infantry division during World War II. When he was a young man at West Point, he was 20 years old, he made a decision before the Lord that he would read the Old Testament once and the New Testament four times a year. And he did it till he was 90. And so he went through the Old Testament 70 times in his life, 280 times the New Testament. And he had one of the most fruitful ministries within the military. He, he was the leader of the Officers Christian Fellowship, but also within his life in terms of in the military. He had a successful career. He had wisdom, they said, that was beyond most people's abilities. Where did he get that? It was the Word of God. It was a willingness to labor and strive in the Word. But guys, we, we don't do it out of duty. It's not a matter of legalism or duty. We do it out of a love for our Lord and the desire to know Him. That motivates it, and it keeps us going. Why? Because we fixed our hope on a living God, he says in verse 10. That word, a living God, is throughout the Old Testament. But he's using it here because sometimes we forget that God is active, and He's living, and He's, he's in our life, and He wants to know us. And he says, who is the Savior of all men, especially of all believers? Now, that, this is an interesting verse, and there's a lot of stuff written on this. Paul is not saying that all people are going to be saved. He's not a universalist, and you can see this in a number of his writings. As a matter of fact, a lot of people want to use this to say that there is no hell, that all people will be saved. But I don't know if you know this, but Jesus spoke more on hell than any of the apostles. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 33, when he's speaking of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? He also said this in Luke 12, 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one whom after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And there are many others that Jesus said. There is a hell that is real. Revelation 20 speaks about the lake of fire. And those that do not have faith in Christ will go there. So how is Jesus the Savior of all men? That's the question. And I think what it is is every nation, every tongue, every tribe is welcome to come to Christ. Guys, your race, your creed, whether you're male or female, slave or free, you, the doors are open. You can come. All are welcome into the kingdom of Christ. And can I encourage you this morning, if you don't know Christ, come. The door is open to you. That's what it means. But it's only if you have faith in Christ, especially for believers. That's the idea. Faith is a key. And so Paul finishes his thought here. He says, prescribe and teach these things. And basically, this is a command. He's saying, do this, Timothy. Teach them these things. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the movies right now, it seems like every other one is a Marvel film. Have you guys noticed that? I mean, I'm thinking, I've started thinking, it's Batman, Iron Man, Thor, Superman, Spider-Man, Captain America, and now they're going to have one called Ant-Man. I don't know, there's like a ton of other ones. 
I don't know if you've ever seen them all. They all have the, basically the same plot. You, you have a guy that kind of doesn't really know anything, and, and maybe he gets beat up, and then all of a sudden he discovers that either he's a mutant or he's got these special powers and, and all this stuff. And kind of as the movie goes along, he ends up having these enemies, and, and then he has these powers, and he wins the final battle, and boom, the movie's over. That's kind of it. But it's interesting if you look right in the middle of the movie or kind of at the beginning front, after he learns he's got this special power, he goes through a time of training. And they call it a montage. You know, they have a real high music and kind of, it's usually about a five or 10 minute segment. You know, you, you have Peter Parker in his room figuring out how to shoot the webs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, but it, you got to have it in every movie because without the training, he couldn't be that guy that he's supposed to be with all those superpowers, Right. The training is everything for the superhero. Can I tell you something? The training is everything also for the Christian. It truly is. Labor and strive for the godliness. Labor and strive for Christ's sake. Put forth diligent effort, not because you have to, because it's a duty and it's a legalistic deal. No, because you love your Lord. You do want to spend time with Him, but you want to know Him more, and you want to see other people come to know Him. Well, Pastor Rob, aren't I supposed to just let go and let God? No, you're not. Throughout the scriptures, God calls us to active obedience, not passive. I'll give you one. 1 John 2, 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. That's active. A good minister helps others, studies the Word of God, avoids false doctrine. A good minister strives to live a disciplined and godly life. Third one is a good minister is a godly example to others. Look at verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself to be an example to those who believe. He's saying, Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. Timothy's probably in his early 30s right here. In that particular culture, think about Paul. Paul's probably 25 to 30 years older. Paul had earned the respect. Timothy right now probably hadn't earned the respect. Well, how do you earn the respect? You live a life that's an example. And so what Paul is saying, Timothy, you set that example. And he gives them five things to do it. One is speech, the use of your tongue as a Christian. If you're going to get yourself in trouble, and particularly for, for a pastor and preacher, it's going to be in this area. You're going to say something you wish you could grab as it's left your mouth. You're like, oh, and there it is. It lands. And how many times have you said something in such a way that hurts somebody, and it might even have been true, but it was the way that you said it. And it was dishonoring to the Lord, even though it was truth, and it had, instead of a positive result for the kingdom, it had a negative result. One way is to be honest. A godly minister needs to be honest with the Lord. They need to be truthful. You also shouldn't have words of bitterness or anger or malice. Also, a minister should, should speak things that are wholesome and edifying, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that as such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Do you use profanity in your language? How do you think that impacts people when you claim to know Christ? Be controlled with what you say. Not only that, then he says conduct. This is lifestyle. This is the things that you do. Hey, by the way, I'm a pastor, but I know how to get on Facebook. And I see things. And I read things, and it matters, because everybody else is seeing it too. And you're making this claim for Christ, and yet there's a dual life on the Facebook, and people are trying to figure out, what does that mean? It's called lifestyle. It's called conduct. So be careful how you live your life in front of people. 
Third example is love. This is Christ-like love. It's other-oriented love. It's agape love. It's something that you can't do on your own, but God can do through you. It's a willingness to sacrifice what you want for the, for the sake of others, and people see the difference. And we often are told by people that come in this church, this is a loving church. What they mean is people care, and you're willing to go the extra mile. Faith, this is more than trusting Christ. I think it means faith in actions, faithfulness. Again, kind of tied to this idea of our life, and, and do people see your faith lived out in a real way? And lastly, purity. Uh, Timothy was a young man. We know that in, in 2 Timothy, he was told to flee youthful lust. And so the idea here is purity sexually, both in mind and also deeds. And I, I think this is the one in the church that's kind of that hidden sin within the church. Focus on the family. He recently did a study, a survey. Only Christians, Christian families. And talking about this idea of purity, 47% of the families said that they had problems with pornography. And that meant pretty serious problems. We're talking half of the Christians interviewed. And so, why? Because you can do it in the secret. But let me tell you something. It impacts ministry. It impacts your families. And it impacts your walk. Flee it. If you have a problem with it, come and talk to a pastor and we'll help you. This last year was an incredible year for me for a number of reasons, uh, but on a personal note for me, it was, you know, I had the privilege to see family members come to know Christ, and it's been a joy for me because I've been doing Bible studies with them and watching them grow, and it's been exciting, you know, my mother, my older brother Rick, my sister Barbara, all individually, and then a really good close friend, Bill Couch, and in talking to them, just kind of saying, man, and I, nobody was more shocked than I was, I'm like, wow, what caused that? I mean trying to figure out what the Lord was doing. And it wasn't the only thing, but it was one thing. Every one of them in different conversations said, we just kind of watched you and Karen, and we could tell you guys believe it. And it was, I call it a holy hunger. It made them kind of want something that's like in Christianity. Now, no perfection here, guys. Karen and I have made mistakes, and we, we live our life. But the family was watching. By the way, people are watching how you live how you conduct your life. And if you live your life in a way of your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity, it's going to matter. And people are watching in those areas. So that's the third thing. A minister is an example to others. And now here's the fourth one. A good minister continually teaches and preaches the Word of God. An effective minister will be faithful just to bring the Word. Let me finish the text here. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Until I come... Give attention to your public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed, bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance of laying on of hands of the presbytery. Take pains in these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. And pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Preserve these things, for as you do this, you will ensure the salvation both of yourself and also those who hear you. So Paul says, hey, until I come, he really wants to be there, but we know from 2 Timothy he didn't make it. And, but he says, hey, until I come, continue in the public reading of the Scriptures. Give attention to the public reading the, of the Scriptures, the exhortation and the teaching. By the way, there's an article before each one of those. So it's the public reading, the Scripture, the exhortation. And what he's saying, that's all part of a church service. And he kind of lays out this outline, how to do church. First, the reading of the Scripture. That's why I read you the Scripture before we talk about it. He talks about exhortation. This is the idea of, of encouragement, 
of explanation, but trying to help you to understand that these are things that you can apply to your life. And then also, teaching is breaking apart the Scripture, explaining the Scriptures, helping you to see the doctrine within the Scriptures, and then, then putting all those together, you have a, a church service. And guys, church service is helpful and necessary. It's, it's the one time that all of us gather together, isn't it? And you all hear the same message. I'm always amazed how the one message affects everybody differently, though. That's the Holy Spirit taking that message and using it. And so what Paul says, don't neglect your gift. I think it's the teaching gift. I think it's a preaching gift. And he's saying it was on the, the laying on of hands by the presbytery, the leadership laid on a hand on Timothy and, and encouraged him to go this route and to be the teacher-preacher that he was. And then Paul's telling him to, to press forward, to, to not give up. He, he says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in, in these, and people are going to see it. As you move forward in faith, Timothy, people are going to watch and see your life. And, and, and he says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Same thing with us. Can I encourage you, church? Pay close attention to yourself. This is going to kind of be the wrap-up of this, this message. Our life it means so much to people that you don't even know it. And I didn't realize it, and, and the Lord just allowed me to see it with all these different family members and things. But I didn't realize that the things that Karen and I do and, and the decisions that we've made and, and the different way that we've kind of just lived our life, it, it had an impact. And also, I was trying to teach them. And so, the things that I did and my teaching, they're, they're a package. And it's the same thing with you. When you're encouraging people towards the Lord, they're watching to see if you really believe it. And so let us be that person. Because when we're that person that just loves the Lord and is living a life towards Him in godliness, pursuing Him in diligence, wanting to be close to Him in reality, and then we're trying to help others get there and they see it all together, God adds, and there'll be fruit. And I pray that for our church, amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for how through it, Lord, it has uh, ministered to our soul. Lord, it's nourishment for us. And Lord, we realize that there is nothing that we can do on our own. It's only through the, the work of your Holy Spirit and the encouragement of your word and, and a moving forward in faith. Uh, in us, we got nothing. But in Christ, all things are possible. And so, Father, we pray now for your hand to be on the ministry of our church and on the people of our church. And by your Spirit, Lord, may you be an encouragement and a help to us as we move forward in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand?